Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,149 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our other extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 17 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. You welcome everyone here today as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. This message will be slightly longer than regular, but I just could not break this passage up into anything succinct. But bear with me. I think you'll enjoy it as we learn from John chapter 7 today. Last week we learned about the many and the multitudes, how, how they, Jesus fed them with bread and fish. But then the next day, they wanted more food. And he said, give us this food to eat. And when he started teaching them from his word, it was too hard for them. The multitude was more interested in physical food than spiritual food. Today, our scripture is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 52, and it starts on page 1659 in your pew Bible. And we'll see that the religious leaders in Jerusalem have had enough of Jesus. They're fed up. And as we see his teaching in the temple, we see that Jesus is in the lion's den. I'll be reading the scripture as we go throughout the message today because it will tie it in to the narrative much more. So keep your Bibles open as we, and follow along as I go through it. As a child, one of my favorite Bible stories is Daniel in the lion's den. And I'm sure you're familiar with that story. That 80-some-year-old prophet in Persia was a faithful man of integrity, and he'd won the friendship of King Darius. He was one of the top leaders in King Darius's kingdom. But some of the other leaders, those men, grew jealous of this old man's trusted status as he, and they schemed to have him killed. But if you look at that story, a better title for it would be The Lion in Daniel's Den. Because the life of the Lord, life is the Lord's to give or take. And there's no lion in all creation that he cannot tame. And Daniel's enemies may have thought they were in charge. They said, finally, we can get rid of this guy that we just despise. But they were gravely mistaken, and they ended up the meal for the lions that following day. The lions of Jesus' day did not prowl around on four feet, though. They stood tall and proud, dressed in their stunning robe of man-made righteousness, empowered by their hypocritical religion. The temple authorities in Jerusalem desired to assassinate Jesus because he continually exposed their jealousy and their greed. He healed people. He fulfilled prophecy. He forgave sins. He miraculously fed multitudes. And he gave the glory to his Father while keeping none for himself. He was like any other rabbi or political leader. No one was like him. No one had ever seen a rabbi like this. He threatened their powers, those religious leaders in Jerusalem, and they wanted him dead. Jesus, in today's passage, is about to enter the lion's den. As we begin chapter 7 here, 
you remember, this comes right after. Feeding the multitude, probably 10,000 or more people, enough where their bellies were full, they could not eat anymore. And then he was teaching them, and many of them turned away. And verse 1 and 2 starts out, After this, Jesus went about Galilee. He did not want to go into Judea because the Jewish leaders were there were looking in a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, we're going to stop right there, and we'll pick up the story in a second. Because the events of Capernaum, such as feeding of the multitudes, took place shortly before the Passover, we're told in John chapter 6, verse 4. And that would have been in March or April of that year. And then the Feast of the Tabernacles was near now, which is in September or October. So we see here that there was probably six months or more that Jesus was ministering all throughout Galilee. So John takes a picture of the feeding of the multitudes and the day after, and then he brings us six months into the future or more to this episode today. As he was ministering in Galilee, his hard teaching in the synagogue had squelched many of those followers from wanting to make him king. Even after he winnowed out some of those people who left him and didn't follow him anymore, we see that multitudes continued to follow him in Galilee. And meanwhile, the words of Jesus' miracles and his signs had reached Jerusalem, and they were becoming very disturbed. They were on edge. Those religious leaders in Jerusalem had heard of the miraculous signs that were happening in Galilee. In a fulfillment of God's commandment, found in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34 through 44, the Jewish families continued to celebrate a week-long autumn festival in temporary houses constructed for such an occasion. I didn't have a pop-up tent at home, and I didn't think we needed to set up like a 10-person tent up here. But if you remember back to your childhood or your kids or your grandkids where they made blanket forts or blanket tents, and they just had, we had so much fun in them. But this was a commemorative time for the Jews when they set up tents, either outside their house or up on their roofs, because many of them had flat roofs. And they celebrated this week-long festival. It reminded them of the covenant, of the protection in the wilderness, where they celebrated the provision that God gave them as they went into the promised land and God provided for them abundantly. And this was a celebration, a week-long festival to commemorate that. It was called the Festival of Tabernacles or Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tents. And the Jews continue this practice even to this day. If you look in your bulletin insert on the side with the picture on it, you'll see these huts, these constructed plywood boxes almost. And they will build, they'll build these outside their homes or on their roofs and they'll dwell in these, temp, these tabernacles the entire week during the festivals of tabernacles. And it's to remind them of that time where God provided for them in the wilderness. So this is the setting for today's passage, the festival of tabernacles. As we go on to verses 3 through 5 in chapter 7, it says, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure and an act in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then John, as he often does in his book, he gives us a little bit of a sidebar here. 
for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And that's the beauty of John's letter, this good news that he wrote because he inserts these little sidebars throughout his passage to tell us what the bigger concept was here, that his brothers didn't even believe in Jesus. But Jesus' brothers taunted him, suggesting that he should go to Jerusalem to perform some magic tricks there and to rally the world behind them. They undoubtedly had seen many of his signs. If you remember, they were in attendance at the wedding in Cana, where he changed water into wine, his very first public sign. And they probably saw many others since then. But they wanted to make him king for their own selfish reasons. Think about being brothers of the king. What power and status that would have given you in society. Their taunt suggested that if he was the genuine Messiah, that he wouldn't mind meeting their challenge that they presented to him. As we go on in verses 6 through 9, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify against its works of evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to the festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So throughout John's narrative, we see Jesus speaking of his hour or his time, and it refers to the time when his glory will be revealed to the world. But they, what they didn't understand is the means of his glory was through suffering. Even his closest disciples never grasped this, even up to his arrest and crucifixion. They thought somehow he would miraculously take over the country as their king, and they want to be part of that. But in every instance where this term hour or time is used, it uses the Greek word hora. And however, the Greek word in this passage here was, was translated time. And it's karyos. And it means more of a season instead of a particular hour. Secular Greek literature and even the Greek translation of the Old Testament use this particular word to indicate a decisive moment, a change that was going to happen, an era that gives way from one to another. It's like the changing of our seasons here in Ohio, where we change from winter to spring. It's a decided change in the way things are. Now, if you remember in chapter 6 and in many of the parables that Jesus taught, Jesus spoke in ways as to be understood at two different levels. A person's interpretation naturally followed their chosen understanding of that passage, of who Jesus really is. And he allowed each person their own inclination to be carried away by their willful misconceptions now, on the surface, Jesus appears to answer his brothers in face value. They taunted him and suggested that he should publicize his identity as Messiah, the king, the Israel king that they longed to see. But he spoke truthfully, saying, in effect, the deciding moment for me to announce myself has not yet come. But the present is always right for you. You go ahead and go to the festival. He then stated why his brother's testimony would be welcomed by the world that was dedicated to evil because at that part in their lives, that season of their lives, they were part of that wicked world. They had not yet believed in Jesus. And we see in other books of the Bible later that many, if not all of his brothers, came to a saving knowledge that he was the Christ, that Messiah. 
Of course, the deeper meaning of Jesus' words referred to his mission. The Feast of the Tabernacles was a harvest celebration to be enjoyed when the harvest was completed. Well, his harvest work had not been completed in Galilee yet, so he had to wait to go to Jerusalem. Now, many manuscripts and translations include the word yet in this passage. In Jesus' declaration, I am not yet going up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. However, some of the original manuscripts omit that word yet. And some have suggested that Jesus outright lied to his brothers, saying, oh, I'm not going up, and then he did. But they, that's not the, the situation. His statement didn't preclude him going up later, which was his intention. It simply he didn't want to accompany his arrogant brothers as they rode in to Jerusalem, proudly strutting around saying, eh, this is my brother. That's not what Jesus wanted. He simply didn't want to accompany them. Instead, Jesus would journey more discreetly with his own disciples and then address, address the Judeans in this time of his choosing. We move on to verses 10 through 13. However, after his brothers left, had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, it was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the religious leaders. Now, it's noteworthy to recognize that Jesus understood the mortal danger presented if he went boldly into the temple, that the officials would see him. And he was in a constant threat of being captured in Judea. And while the Messiah did come to sacrifice his life, he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He knew eventually he would be the sacrifice. He would leave the timing and circumstances of his death to God the Father, not to his enemies. Instead, he would dictate on his own terms when his execution would take place within his mission. As long as he remained hidden where the enemy couldn't find him, or when he did appear, he always appeared in front of a very large crowd. The religious leaders and authorities dared not touch him. Because Jesus could minister in Jerusalem this way. He blended with the crowd as he needed to, and then he publicly stood up in front of a large crowd when he needed to teach them. He often blended with the crowds going in and leaving the temple. And meanwhile, there was a hushed anticipation that stirred debate among the common people in Jerusalem. Some favored Jesus, others condemned him, but few affirmed him as truly the Christ, the Son of God. Verses 14 through 19. Now, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without ever being taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of the Father will find out whether this teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who speaks the glory of the one who sent him is the man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Mo Moses given you the law? 
yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles, as I mentioned, was a a week-long celebration, as we're told in Deuteronomy 16. And on the third or maybe the fourth day of this celebration, he finally went into the temple. Up to that point, he blended with the crowd. And he went to teach, as rabbis often did. The temple was a huge location, and rabbis would gather off to various sections of that and teach their own disciples. And this is what Jesus did as he entered on that third or fourth day. However, the teacher's credibility depended heavily on their educational pedigree. And they could not understand, this crowd could not understand how this one man could be so knowledgeable when he never attended those temple law schools that all rabbis were expected to attend. Now, Jesus responded with a stinging rebuke based on just elementary logic. He then offered a standard which to judge the qualifications of a teacher, his obedience to the previously revealed truth, which was the law. As we move on to 20 through 24, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you were all amazed. Yes, because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it, he, it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. You circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can, excuse me, now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man his whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So in response to Jesus' rebuke, the religious officials, the multitude, were generally split because of their spiritual ignorance. They rebuked the Lord as a demon-possessed man. They said, do you got some sort of death wish in you? Are you demon-possessed? To say someone has a demon can be taken literally or figuratively here. And in this case, the ancient equivalent was saying something, that you're a raving, paranoid lunatic. It wasn't that they were saying he actually had a demon in him, but they just thought he was a crazy man. They didn't know how the religious leaders were going to kill Jesus or wanted so desperately to kill him. Many in the crowd did not understand this because, after all, the religious leaders were temple authorities of God's official representatives and custodians of the Almighty's house. Jesus ignored the insult and continued his indictment, referring to the healing of the invalid at the Pool of Bethesda on a previous trip to Jerusalem, which we studied in John chapter 5, verse 18. In the phrase, you are all amazed, is somewhat unclear here in the original language. The context was a rebuke that was directed toward what appeared to be the religious officials and not the crowd. But through the rest of his dialogue, he freely directs his rebuke both to the crowd and to the religious officials as one group of people. He continued his earlier argument in verses 16 through 19 where Jesus Appeal to the specific of Moses, that president, that Moses, who was the human author of the law, that he wrote about circumcision, the most treasured right among the Hebrews, and then the Sabbath he taught about, that institution that was perverted by man-made tradition. Circumcision was to take place on the eighth day of the life of every male in a Hebrew family. 
Regardless of what day it was, it could be on the Sabbath or any other day, if it was the eighth day, he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So the question is, if the right of circumcision could overrule the Sabbath rule, override the Sabbath rules, why couldn't a miraculous God-ordained healing of an entire invalid be okay on the Sabbath? That was what Jesus was presenting here. If you break the law in one instance on circumcision, why is it breaking the law when I heal a man's complete body? You have one small part of a body that you break the law over in your terms. Why is healing the entire body different? The appearance to which Jesus referred to was a symbolic show here, a righteousness that was undoubtedly impressive to the temple leaders. Yes, we always circumcise on the eighth day, and we never vary from that, even if it's the Sabbath. Jesus called for the crowds, those multitudes of Jews, to ignore those fancy robes and those giant headdresses which the priests wore, to discern the teaching of the truth by comparing it to the deeds and commands of the Scripture. The deeds of Jesus reacted, reflected the grace of God, and he did not violate the Sabbath when he healed the man on the Sabbath. The religious officials condemned his act of mercy because it violated their manufactured rules, the rules that they made up. If that's the case, they violated those same rules every time they circumcised a young boy on the Sabbath. As we move on to verses 25 through 31. And at that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, Now I heard, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that the, he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from, and then when the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, You know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here from my own authority, but the one who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him, and because I came from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform any more signs than this man? So the religious leaders could not do anything to squelch the crowds rising up at this point. They could not eliminate him. To seize him publicly would to divide the crowd and perhaps incite a riot. And they certainly couldn't threaten the crowd during this time because then they would turn on them. The paralysis left the Jews wondering if the leaders are so undecided about Jesus or perhaps their silence is a tacit approval that he is indeed the Messiah. 32 through 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief, chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, Am I am with you only a short I am with you only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go if we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. 
Now here we see again Jesus speaking in multiple layers, the parables that he often taught in. He predicted the ascension to the Father's side and declared that the religious leaders would never see him there because of their heart attitude. Their eternal fate was vastly different than those of his disciples. But as John had illustrated to the multitude in Galilee, the spiritual blindness of non-believers was limited them to a literal interpretation of what he was teaching instead of the greater interpretation, the spiritual interpretation. They wondered if he might leave Israel altogether and win converts among the Jews that were dispersed among the Roman Empire. We move on to 37 through 39. And at that last greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant that the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, each day in the temple, or during the Feast of the Tabernacle, there was one ritual that was performed. And the priest would go out to the Pool of Siloam, which was fed by the, the Gion Spring. And they'd walk through the gate called the Water Gate, because it's where they carried the water into the temple. And they'd walk through that temple water gate. And then they would bring this, they had a huge goblet of water much bigger than this, but I thought this would do for our message today. And what they would do was they pour that water over the altar where they sacrificed animals on, and they would pour that water, symbolizing that water that came from the rock while they dwelt in the wilderness. And Jesus was proclaiming his in this passage that he was the living water. As the congregation sang that hymn based in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, they priest, the priest poured out the water in the altar. The Feast of the Tabernacle, the whole ceremony built toward this convocation. And during this convocation, either when the priests were bringing water in or pouring it over the altar, that where they sacrificed the animals, Jesus called to all the people, and he says, I am that living water that's poured out as a sacrifice. There's so much symbolism in Jesus' teaching. It's not unlike what he offered to the Samaritan woman as we studied in chapter 4. John's editorial comment, written decades later, and that's why I love the sidebars that John inserts here, is written that the living water is indeed that Holy Spirit that would be poured out over all believers, but not given until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The symbolism of the message of that pouring of the water was Jesus is that living water that provided sustenance in the desert. And he's the living water through the Holy Spirit poured out on us that provides us spiritual nourishment. Verses 40 through 44 on hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely, this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can this Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, 
the town where David lived. That's the people that were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but others, but no one laid their hands on him. The crowd remained divided, and we see throughout these teachings the divided crowd going back and forth. Note the distinction between the prophet and the Messiah. In the first century in Judaism, they believed that these, the theologians believed that these were two separate people. But in fact, they are one person. Jesus was the prophet and the Messiah. He was the Messiah prophet. And he was standing in front of them that day, teaching them. So they didn't fully understand that he was that Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He indeed was a Messiah that came from Bethlehem, as we're told in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They didn't understand that's where he was born. We know that because we have the entirety of Scripture, but at that point they did not understand that or realize he was born there. As often occurs with Jesus, the audience was split into two bases in their reaction to the truth. Some believed, but while others sought his destruction. However, no one dared to touch him because the public opinion was so divided. We think in our country, politically, we're divided somewhat. It was even worse in these days. Some were divided with Jesus. Some believed in him. Some did not. In our final verses, 45 through 52, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean you are deceived also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of these rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, the mob knows nothing of the law. There is a curse on them. Now Nicodemus, who was one who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of the, the own number of the Pharisees, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing and finding out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. Now these guards, these officials that they sent out a little bit earlier in this passage, they come back empty-handed. And they said, you're supposed to bring Jesus back. Did you realize that? But they had heard Jesus teach, and they just could not do it. The Pharisees were going to seize Jesus by force and charge him with a crime. But Jesus was unlike any other man who challenged his religious leader's authority no one could refute the truth that Jesus was preaching in the temple. The Pharisees didn't judge the truth based on Scripture or the godly standards. To defend Jesus as a heretic, or to, to the assertion that Jesus was a heretic, they offered evidence saying, all the Pharisees are in agreement here. Jesus is not the one people are saying he is. And then they pointed to the law and say, that ignorant mob out there, they're not learned. They've got a curse on them if they believe that. They pointed to their diplomas, to their teaching, instead of pointing to the scriptures. One Pharisee that we see was not quite as confident. Nicodemus, and if you remember in John chapter 3, came to Jesus at night and asked, what do you mean you must be born again? Do you go into your mother's womb and are born? But Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. And he says, should we dismiss him without even hearing what he has to say? 
So he offered a reasonable defense for Jesus without exposing his own leanings. At this point, he was probably either a secret disciple of Jesus Christ or very close to it. We know that he helped John to take Jesus' body from the grave after his crucifixion. So at that point, we know he had become one of his disciples. Therefore, he offered that reasonable excuse for Jesus, or reasonable defense. Unfortunately, the rebuke of his fellow Pharisees included a patently untrue statement. He says, a prophet does not come out of Galilee. But if they really knew their scriptures, because in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 14, it says the prophets Elijah and Jonah and perhaps even Nahum came from that region which was now called Galilee. So prophets did come from Galilee. Jesus was in the lion's den. In Jerusalem, that temple was that den. He entered willingly, though. Then he definitely moved between security and seclusion. When he was in public, he was always before a crowd. Otherwise, he mingled with the crowd because his hour was still months away. And he had much work to do in the meantime, and a lot of that work will be done in Judea, where Jerusalem was. So what's the application of Jesus walking with the lions? And on your bulletin insert on the other side, I have six things that Jesus considered. No one understood the danger and presented by, that was presented by his enemies of the gospel more than Jesus did. Long before the Feast of the Tabernacles, the religious authorities wanted Jesus dead. We read this in John chapter 5. Although they knew he, they wanted to kill him, he refused to shrink from that task that the Father had given him. This is not to say that the Lord carried out his purpose with foolhardy abandon, but he had come to earth to die for the world's sin. He was that Lamb of God. But he was not on a suicide mission. He didn't seek for the first available opportunity to be arrested. On the contrary, he repeatedly eluded this capture until his hour had come to recognize the danger as possible consequences as his service for God. It doesn't require that we put ourselves or Jesus put himself in front of them prematurely. Instead, it's a matter of priorities. The Lord walked among the lions in Jerusalem he perfectly balanced his trust in God, his danger of the enemies, and his dedication to his mission. And these are six things that Jesus did. First, he assessed the danger in verses 1 through 7. Jesus did not naively stroll into the lion's den. He knew the religious establishment in Jerusalem wanted him dead. They had people scouting for his arrival. Where is he? So that they might seize him without attracting attention to him themselves. They wanted to dispose, him quiet, dispose of him quietly so he would be put to an end. So constantly aware of his danger, Jesus walked wisely. Second, he devised a strategy to nullify the danger in verses 10 and 14. Jesus recognized that the religious authorities could not seize him if they didn't know his whereabouts. If he blended in the crowd, they couldn't privately go and capture him. And they dare not seize him in front of this huge crowd of witnesses when he was teaching. Capturing Jesus in public and then killing him would turn the popular support among those who believed in him against those religious elite. And nothing meant more to them than human approval. Therefore, Jesus used this to his advantage. He blended with the multitudes when he needed to. He entered and exited the temple 
in groups of people, and then he addressed the religious leaders when he had a big crowd in front of him. Third, he risked the safety only when his mission was put into danger. Verses 8 and 14. Jesus' brothers chided him and suggested that he boldly stride into the temple, stand before the multitudes, and proclaim that I am the Christ. But the Lord's mission was to be the Christ in addition to proclaiming that he himself was the Christ. He came to embody that divine truth, to declare God's covenant people. To accomplish this, he traveled the length and the breadth of Judea from Samaria to Galilee. And now he had to confront the, the teachers directly in the temple. Fourth, he chose to do only what brought glory to God, avoiding seeking glory for himself in verse 18. The Son of God came to earth to be our Savior, not to become a martyr. The death of a popular leader can be a catalyst for revolution, but Jesus was not, did not come to be a revolutionary. Instead, he spoke and acted on behalf of his Father. And he did this only because it was necessary to complete his mission. Fifth, he trusted the Father to guard his safety until his hour had come. Verse 30 in verses 32 and 33. The Lord didn't adopt a fatalistic, well, if I die, I die attitude. But he did entrust the fathers to his timing of this. He knew the death awaited him by the Jewish officials and, and religious authorities. And he knew that would be the means of his death. But he also recognized that nothing occurs unless God permits it. And sixth, he stayed at his task until it was completed. And then... When it was necessary, he retreated from danger. Verses 37 through 39, and also when we get to chapter 8, verse 59. The Lord didn't retreat from the temple because the danger mounted. Instead, he attended the feast until that final convocation where he poured out the water. The water was poured out, and he says, I am the living water, which gave him the most provocative speech of the entire week within that temple. Then he engaged his enemies in debate and having accomplished his father's purpose. And when it was necessary, he retreated from the lion's den until his mission required for him to return. Now the world system hated Jesus and it hates those who are followers of his even today. And we're not, in America, we don't suffer a lot of religious persecution, but a lot of countries do. Being familiar with our niece whose mother is a part of the church in China, underground church, we understand that they're in constant danger on a daily basis. And no amount of planning can predict everything that will happen. However, they don't foolishly go into the streets and proclaim Christ because they still need to minister to one another. And this is what Jesus did when he needed to, he went publicly, and then he went into seclusion. Instead, we should fervently pray, especially for those that are in countries that are persecuted, but pray when we get into situations that we'll know the difference between publicly proclaiming Christ and then stepping back out. We need to remain focused on the goal, to seek glory of God in all of our actions, to realize that our purpose here on earth, our occupation, is to build God's kingdom. 
our jobs and what we do for a living as a means to provide for that. And we, no matter where God's placed us, whether in the workforce or in ministry or at home, we need to do the will of God, the best of our ability in that position. And this is what these teachings today are about. Jesus was in the lion's den, but just like Daniel, God closed the mouth of those lions. They couldn't arrest him, and he slipped off into the crowd until his hour comes. And that's what we need to take from this lesson today. Next Sunday, Jesus' teaching will be tested once again in a message called Letters in the Sand. So I would encourage you to read John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come boldly before your throne. We thank you that we can be bold in the lion's den as Jesus was in the temple during this passage that we read today. Thank you for his example to us, the strength that you give him. May we accept that those rivers of living water, that Holy Spirit that will flow through us to give us the strength, to give us wisdom, to give us guidance on a day. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.